Well, good morning. If you would, please open your Bibles and me to the book of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, for those watching online, I do want to welcome you. So, so excited to be able to study the scriptures with you in week two of a series that we're simply calling Greater Still, that is really prepping us for a two-year journey of greater ministry, greater missions, and greater future together. Now, I'm so excited today to talk about greater devotion, but I want to remind us that last week we kicked off this series by talking about greater prayer to the necessity for us to continue to talk and to communicate with the Lord because before God ever does something greater through us, God desires to do something greater in us. And so we studied last week from Ephesians chapter three, one of the most boldest prayers given in the New Testament. And we found that God can do abundantly more, that God has the capacity to exceed what we can think or ask the scriptures tell us. And may that empower us and embolden us to have bold prayers for God. And today I want to talk to you about greater devotion. What you do is what you become. So what are we doing? Devotion is simply a word that means love and loyalty or enthusiasm for a person, activity, or cause. Jesus in Luke chapter 14 is going to establish the demands of discipleship. He's going to invite us to leave all and wholeheartedly devote our lives to following him. And I pray in this season of asking God who has worked greatly among us to work greater still that we would have a greater devotion to Jesus above all else. What you do is what you become. The way we think shapes the way we act and lead and speak and live. For our life is a direct result of our devotion. Each of us is centered upon something. What's your life centered upon? Jesus addresses our devotion to him in our relationships and in our priorities and passions and even our possessions. He's going to tell us as a disciple that he must be above all else. And so as we study the text, may God already begin to prepare our hearts for what he has for us. And the Bible says in verse 25 of, verse of Luke 14, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus in Luke 14 is mere months away from the cross. He is on his way to Jerusalem. His disciples have been with him now over two years. He is surrounded by, even at this later stage in his ministry, the scripture says, by large crowds. In fact, historians tell us that there could be up to 10 to 20,000 people currently following Jesus in Luke chapter 14. It is from this crowd that Jesus abruptly turns in leading them begins to give him his requirements for his disciples, to convey his understanding of what it truly means to live a life for him by following him. He begins to allocate within his words the priority of one's relationships and prioritize their passions, even their possessions. 
He reminds them that a life of following Christ is a life of self-denial, not self-fulfillment. Self-sacrifice, not self-centeredness. Self-abandonment, not self-gain. It is akin to what Jesus had previously said to his disciples in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, when he says, if anyone desires to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up my cross, and follow me. You see, in Jewish culture, most disciples would give their lives in adherence to a rabbi. Wherever the rabbi traveled, they traveled. Whatever the rabbi did, they did. The teachings of the rabbi would be in adherence to every aspect of their life. What he said, they did. It is within this vein that Jesus abruptly turns to this crowd and defines the relationship. He has a meeting with them where he begins to detail what it means to be a true disciple. If you ran in a relationship in your life where you had to DTR, define the relationship, there was a restaurant in central Oklahoma that it means so much to me. It's Joe's Famous Pizza in Purcell, Oklahoma. Now, when I grew up, I thought Joe's Famous Pizza was arguably just the greatest pizza in this hemisphere. And God has been so kind through the years to allow me to live in five different states and travel halfway across the world. And so now I can tell you, it's just pretty good pizza. But when I was a kid, it was the absolute best for really two reasons. One, it was because it was a place where my family would go and fellowship and would celebrate life over some good food and even greater fellowship. It means a world to me. But secondly, and I still remember the actual booth, it was a turning point in Brit and I's relationship where I defined the relationship. We'd been together six months, you know, between you and me, the moment I met her, I was hopelessly in love with her. The moment I met her, I knew there is no way someone like this would ever have anything to do with me or should have anything to do with me. It was a very humbling thing. And so by the time we, we got to this restaurant, we'd been together about six months and the Lord called me into ministry. And so I sat her down and, and said, look, the, the Lord has called me to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to pastor a church to do so. And I'm going. And I want you to come with me. I want you to do life with me. I want you to see tens of thousands of people with me multiply disciples to follow Jesus, wherever that leads maybe around the country, maybe around the world. And of course, Brindis looks up and thought, I thought we were just gonna eat pizza. <laughs> and it was from this conversation and defining this relationship that the Lord began to set in our hearts, this is what he had for us to do. I don't really know why we waited 10 months after that to even get married. I mean, I was already ordained. We already great food. We already had plenty of witnesses. We should've just got married right there in that booth, right? But our lives and our relationships were never the same. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here in Luke 14. He's defining what it means to follow him, what it means to be devoted to him. Are you a fan or a follower of Christ? You see, you can know. You see, a fan follows Jesus as long as there's no significant cost. As long as, as there's no consistent change required. A fan wants to, Jesus to entertain them inspire them, but don't interfere in their lives. Don't reign over them. A fan simply desires to be fascinated with Jesus. They have no desire to follow Jesus. 
And it is within this sense that Jesus details to us in stunning clarity what it means to follow him. Salvation is absolutely free, but it will cost us everything. I will remind you historically that in Luke chapter 14, there are currently 20,000 people following Jesus. At the end of this gospel, in Luke 24, there are 20 people left. That's it. These are real words. These are real demands. It's a liberating truth. The salvation is absolutely free, but it will cost us everything. Jesus must be above all else. And he outlines three spheres in which this applies. Our relationships, our passions and priorities, and our possessions. He says first in regard to our relationships, he says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and his children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, arguably, this is probably the most abrupt statement of Jesus in the entire Gospels. Even though Jesus had previously in Luke 12 implored his followers to avoid the influence of the world in Luke 12:1, to fear God, not man, in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5, to confess Jesus as Lord and to seek his kingdom above all in Luke chapter 12, verse 8 even to listen to the Holy Spirit, to abandon the pursuit of materialism in Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. Yet here he is, yet again bringing into focus and clarifying that a man's a following him. And you must hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. And if so, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, isn't this a little extreme? I mean, do I really have to hate Nana to follow Jesus? Jesus is using here a Hebrew expression. He's using a a form of, of ancient Near Eastern cultures, hyperbole, as a matter of priority. In doing so, Jesus is defining a way of life, a priority in which we are to express an action of attitude, and thus dependence on lovingly and devoting our lives to Jesus. So much that compared to everything else, it's if we love them less. All of our closest human ties are a distant second to following Jesus Christ. He is calling here to a dominating love and devotion. Think about this. You can tell what you love by what you hate. You can tell what you love by what you hate. You see, I, I love my, my family. I love you. And anything that, that keeps me in a, a long period of time from my family and from you, I'm not a fan of. It's not. I just don't want to be distracted by. I just don't want to give my life Toward. It's just not the best use of what God has blessed me. Why? Because I love my family. I love you. Secondly, I hate death. I hate it. 
See what it does to people. And even though it's a way of life, as a way of sin, that is why we are so adamantly here and passionate about life. That is why to the best of our abilities, we try to lift up Jesus Christ, to implore and encourage you to devote your life to following Christ. Why? Because he gives life and life abundantly. That's why. Thirdly, I, I hate most vegetables. I do. Because I love meat. And I only have so many calories throughout the day. And so it's an easy choice. Because I love meat. What about you? Who do you see yourself as? Jesus as Lord is speaking here of a preference, a fervent devotion of life. Jesus above all else, even in our relationships. The devotion and adoration for Jesus must take precedence over self-preservation over dependence and satisfaction of anyone else. Jesus requires more of us than we ever thought, but gives us more than what we could ever imagine. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9? What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, what God has for those who love him. Love for him must be so sincere then, so unique, so great, that anything else pales in comparison. Can I tell you that Jesus always taught this way? I mean, remember what Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. There is no such thing as a casual devotion to Jesus. It must be Jesus above all else. In our relationships, now our passions and priorities. He says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The Greek tense here shows urgency. It implies here an intentionality in picking up something immediately and continually. Jesus is speaking here now, at all times, with all things. We must be ready to bear his cross, to come after him as his disciples. Now, what did he mean? Simply this, that Jesus in you is the end of you. Before there's ever a true beginning, there must be an end. You see, the cross was as humiliating as it was excruciating at the time of Jesus. The cross was always preceded by scourging, tying of one to a stump, a whip or reins, which at the end of them were full of bones, glass, shard or anything else that could rip one's flesh. One was then beaten almost 40 times. Most people just died on the stump. Once completed, the naked criminal would then be stripped of all that he has and a cross would be placed upon his back, usually weighing right at 100 pounds. A sign 
of the listing crimes of this individual was placed around its neck, and this individual will be placed right in the middle, in the epicenter of life, and they would carry their own cross to their subsequent death, and in doing so would be pummeled by insults and shame, food, rocks, or anything else. Every person on a cross went there to do one thing and one thing only, and that was to die. In fact, I'll remind you that even our king was not immune from such a fate. He died on a cross. It is this imagery that immediately this crowd would have known and depicted. They would have understood that a man of Christ, that to follow him is a call to self-denial, not self-fulfillment. A call to sacrifice, not entitlement. A call to total commitment, no matter the cost. That finding real eternal life meant abandoning your own life in order to receive his. It was a public admonishment that we are guilty and need to be pardoned. That we are lost and must be found. We need a takeover in all areas, not a makeover. It is this setting that Jesus details his disciples and how they are to follow him. It is similar to his words in Luke chapter 17, verse 33, when he says, he who desires to seek his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. It is in the paradox of the gospel that we actually receive life by losing it. That our life is a result of his death, of placing him in accordance to who he is in our lives above all else. There was a man in 1519 by the name of Hernan Cortez. And Hernan Cortez was a conqueror. He was an explorer. He actually found the state of California. So it was because of this man that we have Disneyland and the Beach Boys and arguably our country's greatest president, Ronald Reagan, in and out burger and all these sorts of things. And it's this man who began to hear of the allurement of a treasure that no one had discovered, but that everybody needed. A treasure that conqueror upon conqueror before was never able to obtain. And so Cortez gave his life for the next two years in forming an army of over 500 men. He hired over 100 sailors, trained them for months to head from Cuba to the Yucatan Peninsula to engage a group of people there called the Aztecs, for they possessed such treasure. It was during this time and this voyage that Cortez personally went to every person on this boat and told them their lives would never be the same once they received this treasure. That their families would never be the same once they obtained this treasure. That their homes would never be the same once they obtained this treasure. And then upon reaching the shore, they waited for months and months and months as Cortez gathered information about the Aztecs, as he began to map out a strategy to seize this such treasure. 
And at the appropriate time, he gathered all of these men and he gave them three words that would forever change their lives. Burn the ships, he said. And instantly behind them, 10 of the 11 ships that he took to get here were burned. And the interesting thing is he saved one for himself. But the illustration is true. There is no plan B. That in order for your life to change, in order for your family to change, in order for those who come behind you for their lives to forever change, you must be willing to die. And in being willing to die, you can truly live. It is this imagery that Jesus gives us in regard to our priorities and passions in following him. With that in mind, what are some of the ships in our lives that God needs to burn as we devote our lives to him? What is it in your priorities and your passions that you need to burn in order that Jesus may be above all else? God, burn our ambition. God, burn our self-reliance. God, burn any desire to make much of ourselves. Burn anything, Lord, that is nothing less than your will and your best for us, for your glory. Because you must be above all else. Being a disciple of Jesus is being willing to die to the life we want to live. It is being willing to part with the things that we've devoted and worked our lives for. It is a disciple who is willing to reign and allow the reign of Christ in all things. Whatever it is that God demands in our wholehearted devotion to imitating him while sacrificially living for him, for his glory. Jesus must be above all else. In fact, remember what Jesus said earlier in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the New Testament, the word heart defines the true character of a person. It's not who you are when you're being paid it's not who you are when you're before others. It's not who you are when your mother or mother-in-law is looking at you. It's who you really are. And Jesus says that a person's greatest treasure is directly linked to what they value and devote themselves to the most. So what is it in our relationships and in our passions and priorities and even our possessions and we need to carefully evaluate because the Bible says those things are never neutral. They either move us toward Christ because they are for Christ or they move us away from Christ because they are for and about us. Jesus says where your treasure flows, your heart goes. So may we devote our lives to Jesus above all else. For he is the seed of Eve. He is the Passover lamb. He is the lion of Judah. He is the bright morning star. 
He is Emmanuel, the Logos, the last Adam, the second Adam, the greater Moses, the Christ, the son of David, the son of God, the ruling, reigning king of the universe. And if he's your king, he will be above all else. In your relationships and in your passions and priorities, even your possessions. In fact, look at verse 28. Jesus, in verses 28 through 32, gives two illustrations here. But let's, for the sake of time, just focus on the first one. He says, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it or not? Otherwise, he's laid a foundation and not able to finish. And all who see him mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish? Now here's something fascinating. The parable is only found here in the New Testament. In Jesus' day, for one to be shamed, to one to dishonor was worse than death. It is this imagery that Jesus here depicts a landowner who intentionally and deliberately assesses before building an expensive watchtower. Now this watchtower was just simply a structure that was lifted up off the ground, usually right next to a vineyard. It had several functions. It was used to protect one's family from their enemies. It was used to store one's goods or belongings or treasures. It was also used generally as just a way to survey and guard the vineyard. It is this sense that Jesus uses this phrase count the cost. One who deliberately and meticulously, thoroughly calculates, considers if something is of worth of acting upon it. It describes a word to add up, to quantify the cost. It can be used elsewhere in scripture to count the votes. And remember what Stalin said? He who casts the votes is irrelevant. He who counts the votes is the significant one. It is this sense in which Jesus wants us to evaluate our lives. Have we counted the cost? There is a mansion infamously in North Texas that is revered not for its beauty or for its unique structure, but it is viewed in light of its emptiness because it was never completed. If you head, head south on I-35, south of Denton, north of Dallas, near Sanger, you will see on the right side of the highway the revered, now infamous, Sanger Mansion. Now, I remember watching this as a kid when I was growing up. We would often go to Dallas for vacation or for OU Texas games or you know, to go to Six Flags or you know, just for a time of recreation. And I remember seeing this monstrosity of a structure which is set upon 72 acres in North Dallas, which encompasses over 27,000 square feet, three entire floors, which have never been finished. It has had, in over now 35 years, multiple owners, which have gone bankrupt. It is owned currently, as of 2020, by a wedding venue who is still, to this day, unable to complete the project. 
And here this architecture and this structure sits on a hillside in God's country, left undone. What was once seen is desired to be the most beautiful mansion in all of Texas is now a testimony to individuals who were just unable to count the cost. Jesus uses the same imagery for those who desire to follow him. That we are to meticulously and intentionally assess our lives and to see if we are worthy to participate in such adventures in light of the calling of Christ. You see, your life is building one or two kingdoms. And those Christ followers have an obligation to assess the cost of whatever it is God places before us in light of the demand to follow Christ and to build his kingdom in every sphere of life. Specifically, our relationships, our passions and priorities, and even our possessions. You see, the Bible tells us from Genesis to Revelation that Christ's followers are stewards of everything and owners of nothing. It is not what you own. It is who owns you that is significant. So as we enter in this season of greater still, as we begin to ask God for his favor, as we steward the resources God has given us, what is it in regard to greater ministry and greater missions and a greater future that God is calling you to be more devoted in? This is a vision that over the next two years will allocate $19 million to three specific areas, ministry and missions and future. It is something that all of us, as 100% of us as Christ followers, are desiring to participate in. We need to petition the Lord how we are to be devoted in. It is within these spheres that it is now that we're asking what areas is God saying, you know what, I have a greater devotion for you in. Is it ministry? Is there an intentionality in which God is wanting you to live? Is there an intentionality to see those who know you that they would see him. Is there a lifestyle where God is desiring us to pray for those around us and care for those around us and share for those around us? To take the gifts that he's blessed us and to use those as an opportunity to point people to Jesus. Uh, we have, by God's grace, seen 58 first-time guests in one week recently here. 58 that have never stepped foot on our campus, not one time. Are we living with intentionality? And are we greeting and encouraging and fellowshipping with those around us? Inviting them to study the Bible in our Sunday and small groups, to, to hang out with us for lunch right after church and forming relationships. For Jesus must be above all else in greater ministry. How about in greater missions? Are, are we living a life that is Jesus-centered, not self-centered? I know we all struggle with that, including me. But is our focus on him? Is our love for him? Are we serving him? Are we pointing to him? In fact, I'm so excited this year as we are praying for over 400 of our Christ followers here in our church to be equipped in this relational evangelism strategy, not just a way to share your faith. We're calling it bless. 
But we're going to teach you and equip you how to build relationships by prayer and to listen and respond and to eat with, with someone and talk about Jesus, to serve others for Jesus, to share his story. What would happen if just each of us, as we follow Christ, just one person a month, we had that same intentionality with? Oh, the impact that we can make in BA and beyond. Even in regard to our greater future, the making sure that we're not allowing our possessions to have a priority or supremacy over us, but only Christ and Christ alone. Nothing else and no one else. That we're living in such a way that we're giving to God first and most because he owns it all. That we're investing in his kingdom, not consuming in ours. That we're not merely giving, but that we're giving generously and sacrificially. You say, how do you know the difference? See, well, when one gives something, they just simply transfer one possession to another. When someone gives sacrificially, it's a result of they've been possessed by God himself. They've been taken over. It is all of them as an expression of what God has done for them. In fact, I saw this this week. We had about midweek, I was watching some of our kids, and Tate, our youngest son, is just all boy, and man, he loves football. He's so excited about tonight. Uh, side note. He thinks the Cincinnati Bengals are called the Cincinnati Bagels. So let's keep that going for a while, all right? It's awesome. And so Tate the other day came to me while I was studying. He said, Daddy, can I have a snack? I said, sure, son, you can. So he goes in there and, you know, he's doing life. And then Bryn calls and says she's on her way home. Now, ladies, let me give you a little tip. So the moment you call and you're on your way, that's a shot clock that goes off in your man's heart which means he has a finite amount of time to do everything that you told him to do before you left. And so I was going by the house and was knocking out those things and was getting this all taken care of. And, and I looked at Tate and had found that Tate had grabbed spicy nacho Doritos as his snack. Now we are very passionate about raising men in our household, men that earnestly and passionately follow Christ. And a man does not eat nacho cheese Doritos. A man eats spicy nacho cheese Doritos. And so Tate has been taken over. He's all in to that philosophy. So much so that it was all over his shirt. It was all over his hands, his fingers, his mouth, even his tongue was stained. And so he was on our couch and I went up to him and said, do you value living he said, yes, daddy. I said, then don't move because your mom's on your way home, her way home. And so I grabbed not one paper towel, not two paper towels, but three paper towels to clean this kid off of this spicy nacho cheese awesomeness. And he was sitting there. I said, what do you think, buddy? You want to know what he said? It was totally worth it. <laughs> he was all in. I can't help but think what God is asking us during this season. What God is wanting us to devote our lives to. And when we begin to assess, count the cost in ministry, in missions, in future. And when we ask you to do what God has done, to give generously and sacrificially, then by God's goodness and grace, we'll look back and say, it was totally worth it. 
we have such a couple among us and so many more that God has began to speak to and move in and to live a life that counts the cost that is Jesus above all else. And as we enter into this greater still season, I would love for you to hear from them. Look to the screens. I'm Tony Howerton. I'm Denise Howerton. And we've been at FBCBA for 21 years. Uh, we've been at our church prior to that for about 13 years, and we're looking around for a, a place new. And of all the churches that we visited, it was the place we felt more like we were at home. We had a place to serve. Uh, yeah, which was important to us. Well, I think for Denise, it's always been important to be a part of the music yes. in some fashion or form. We both served on various committees, and I've worked there with missions, and so we've kind of been there throughout the time where that's grown from us really just getting started to being in multiple countries and in multiple relationships locally and throughout the U.S. And so just watching that whole thing grow and realize that God is on the move in many places and in many cultures and in many governments. He is not only capable of working in ours and through ours, but he's capable of working in any situation. I think it's important. I think that's our call. That's what God has asked us to do, is go and tell the world or tell your neighbor or tell whoever, anyone who doesn't know Jesus that they need to know Jesus. You can't live your Christian life laterally. You, you're either moving up or you're moving down. You know, that's the great challenge, though, I think, for our church in the coming days. And I think it's the great challenge for many pastors who lead churches around the country is not whether or not they're capable of leading or whether they're God's person to do so, but whether or not the people are willing to follow. We have to take the step outside the walls of our little box that we build around ourselves and welcome people and let other people know that we're glad that they're there, invite people instead of just sitting in our little group of acquaintances or knowledge of people, we gotta step up, we gotta make that step. You know, I think most people in their lifetime want to do something great. And I think we have the, a God who wants to do something great through us. The question is whether or not we'll move past ourselves enough to do it. Whether that be in our giving, whether that be in our serving, uh, or just in our living sacrifice. And I think our church has seen that in the past. We have a lot of new people that haven't experienced that yet. And so I think for those of us who have been there a long time, we have to be willing to demonstrate that and hope that God will move them in such a way that they'll be able to experience those same things. What excites me about the Greater Still Initiative and in the future of our church is the potential. This city is full of people that need Jesus. This city is full of people that want to be a part of something, and whether it's great or wonderful or, or exciting, it's, it's just us that is gonna be able to include them. And I think that with this Greater Still Initiative, we're getting a space that is gonna be able to accommodate that. We're getting the opportunity to visit a city that is gonna be open to your participation. And I think that if we, as a body of believers, can open our minds and hearts to Jesus and let him work through us to do what he wants us to do. 
then I think that the potential is whatever God has in store for us. Because if we're just to obey what he wants, then whatever it is that he has in mind for us, it can't fail because he's the one in control of everything. It's just more opportunity to take the gospel forward. And for me, it's just like we were often read in scripture, God would set something in front of his people. If they were willing to take this step, there were already steps planned past that. To me, the Greater Still Initiative is just, is just that. It's the initiative to do things greater still. Amen. So how about you? What is it that God is saying, I want you to be intentional about during this season? That I'm wanting greater devotion from you to me in regard to ministry and missions and future. What we do is what we become. And as we continue to become more and more like Christ, who has worked great among us, may we beg Christ to work greater still in and through us. God, give us a greater devotion as we set your son Jesus above all.